You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you're a frequent listener, I want to let you know about listener support for All Things Video. I often joke that doing this podcast is my favorite way I lose money every month. There's a lot of time and hard work that goes into producing each episode and hiring a professional editor to make them sound great. It really is a labor of love, so I'm happy to do it, but we'd really appreciate your contributions to help improve future episodes. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation, please visit anchor.fm slash all dash things dash video slash support. And we'll include that link in the show notes. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Fred Seibert, Chief Creative Officer of WOW Unlimited Media. Fred, welcome to the show. James, thanks for having me. Yeah, so glad we get to do this. Me too. I thought we'd start off, I mean, you're no stranger to the audio format. You know, your introduction to media came in college when you worked at Columbia University's radio station. So what drew you to the music industry? You know, I am almost 68 years old, and I was 12 years old when the Beatles came to America in February of 64. And though I come from a family of scientists, and I knew at six years old I'd be a chemist, I didn't know that the Beatles were going to blow my mind to the extent that they did. I went to college to study chemistry, and six weeks in, I literally looked at my lab mate and said, you know, the Beatles are more important to me than this, and I walked out and never looked back. So I walked right to the college radio station because I heard if you worked at the college radio station, you could get free records. And in those days, free records were like currency. It's the ultimate currency. Exactly (laughs) right. And I walked in and frankly, uh, though I went to four years of college, I still haven't graduated because I basically majored in college radio and never left the building if I could help it. Uh, yeah, I had a similar story. I was admitted to USC for film production and must have spent the majority of the four years at the television station. There you go. Just loved it. And, and you know, ended up getting more involved in the business side. But that was where I cut my teeth sure, on yeah, learning about, you know, yeah, film yeah. and TV. So uh, are you a musician yourself? What What else attracted you to music? Yeah, well, I played music from the time I was six or seven until I was in my early 20s when I realized that I was never going to work hard enough to be the musician I wanted to be or to be like the musicians I admired. And given that the Beatles were my model for virtually everything, the only other person I had heard of in their creative aura was the producer George Martin. And I said, oh, I like all the stuff behind the scenes and I like the microphones and all that type of stuff. And so I just went to the other side of the glass and declared myself an engineer and producer even though I didn't know anything about those things. And, you know, in that era, um, you know, pretty much until the 1980s, there was nothing more important in pop culture than music. Even with all the great things that were happening in movies, what was going on in television, you know, all that type of stuff. If Paul McCartney announced that he had taken LSD, it was front page news everywhere. Now, you know, the closest thing a pop star can do to get on the front pages is if Britney Spears shaves her head or Phil Spector murders someone. But if Mark Zuckerberg changes two words in the privacy policy, it's front page news across the world. So the streams of pop culture, which really were really focused on everything pop music, 
completely faded away into what is now, you know, we'll loosely call internet culture or the things around that culture. And, you know, at the time I thought I was a music guy and what I have done in looking back on 30, 40, 50 years is realize that I'm a pop culture guy and I get blown in the wind to wherever pop brings me. But uh, the first, I guess, entrepreneurial endeavor you had in the media space was launching this Oblivion Records with uh, <laughs> two co-founders, right? right? And, and so you published a number of jazz and blues albums for independent artists. What served as the inspiration to start that business? Well, you know, I, um, I was a pop guy. You know, I listened to rock and roll and to whatever was in the top 40. And then I got to the college radio station. We were in New York City at Columbia. And the idea of pop music, everyone looked down their nose at it. And the radio station featured classical, folk, and jazz. Uh, none of which I was interested in one way or the other. And I got stuck engineering an avant-garde jazz show. You know, uh, Albert Eiler, Ornette Coleman, all those kind of... And I would literally like put on a record and then turn the volume down because it was just ear splitting and I, I couldn't stand it. And then one day after about six months of doing this, I walked in and everything made sense to me. I don't know what happened. It was like a drill had burrowed through my head and opened up the passages. And, you know, you got to go along to get along. And I started paying attention to jazz. And because I was interested in the recording side and we were in New York City, all the jazz musicians in town would come by and visit at some point or another. Charles Mingus would come by, Alice Coltrane would come by, Ornette Coleman, and I would record these people. So one day I had recorded um, a weird German avant-garde vibraphonist and his band. And at the end he listened to it and said, oh, it sounds really good. Could I take the tape? I said, sure, I'll make a copy for the station and take the tape along. And about... Two months later, I get a package, you know, a 12 by 12 package in the mail from Germany. And I open it up and it's a record of this musician. And I turn it around and it said, recorded by Fred Seibert, you know, whatever date it was. I was like, oh my God, I'm on a record. (laughs) This is the coolest thing ever in the universe. At the same time, I read an article in Rolling Stone, uh, which was a new paper at the time about what they call liberation record companies. And it was, you know, one of those, you don't have to be indentured to the man. You know, people are starting their own record companies right and left. And one of my close friends was a 300-pound Italian hippie on Long Island who wished that he was a black blues musician from the Mississippi Delta and kept talking about the fact that he wanted to, you know, get a record deal. And I was like, what, what do you mean, a record deal? Why don't we just do it ourselves? He said, oh, okay. Uh, I know somebody who'll loan us $1,800 to press up 2,000 records of that tape you made with me with the 71-year-old black blues musician from the Delta named Mississippi Fred McDowell. That could be our first record. And People love him and we'll sell records and then we'll do my record. That's how we started the company, you know, with a, 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 a live air shot that I had made down at a little club on McDougal Street in New York, pressed up the record. It's still available on your nearest Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, and any streaming service that you would like. 
and I was in the business. Incredible. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Had you always considered yourself an entrepreneur? I mean, what, what, what gave you the, that sense that we can just do it ourselves? Yeah. Well, you know, my mom and dad were pharmacists who owned a mom and pop pharmacy, a classic, you know, little thing on Long Island. Both of their parents had owned little stores. You know, my mother was Bulgarian. Her father had a pharmacy in Bulgaria. And my dad was from a farm town in upstate New York, and he had a little general store. And somehow or other, the DNA molecules like found their way to me. I was the oldest child, so my parents put me to work when I was four years old because they couldn't afford babysitters. And I spent my life working. And it just made sense. I, I guess I was a natural supervisor. And whenever the chance presented itself, I'd go, why don't we do this? You know, it was like Judy Garland in, in the movies that said, why don't we get a stage and put on a show and that type. So it was just sort of a natural thing. I had a band, you know, after the Beatles and we had to book gigs and put on a show. And you also happen to be the band manager, yeah, I, exactly. I take it. I, well, we, you know, in those days you were, everybody was everything, you know, that type of thing. And I also probably, you know, I, I think I have a bit of an authority complex and anybody who could be the boss made me nervous. So it was just easier to be your own boss. What was the hardest part about being a first time founder and saying, I'm going to start a record label? Uh, that we had to literally go to ads in the back of music magazines to find out how to press records. There were no, there's no internet. There were virtually no books. There was 16 Magazine and Rolling Stone. You know, there was no guide. And so you literally had to make up everything. That was a good thing, you know, like uh, when it came to, okay, we found out how to get the record pressed and mastered and all that type of stuff. But we needed a record cover. And we had no record cover. And I didn't even know the term graphic design. So I went to the store, bought a book, to show you how to lay out and how to get typesetting. And I, uh, this is all like foreign. So a buddy of mine was the associate editor of Screw Magazine, a pornographic newspaper in New York City. He goes, oh, Steve will set the type for you. And I go down to Screw Magazine and get my typeset for my you know country blues record that we were doing. And then I had a razor blade and scotch tape and laid it out on my neck. I mean, if I showed you the first one, you can see that I did all the layouts because everything is crooked and weird. But, you know, we got a record out eventually, and then we had to sell it. That was hard. How'd that go? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it did okay. My, my partner was two years older than me. I was 19, and he was already um aside from being a wannabe blues man which he turned out to be and turned out to be good he was already married with a kid and had a record store wow. so he kind of knew how to get something done and so he found us distributors and all that type of stuff but honestly he and i were more interested in actually making the record than quite understanding how to sell it and we you know we ended up making five or six records over the history his was end up being the last record we made and never sold um, and then we went broke you know it was really as simple as that we went bankrupt and um, had to go and find real work <laughs> sure and so what did that mean for you I had um, a roommate who was the most patient human being in the world he was a college radio buddy of mine and 
I'm not sure that he had the tolerance for uh, screwing up like I did, but he had a tolerance for me that is still to this day sort of unexplainable in that when I ran out of money, he started paying the rent, buying the records, buying the concert tickets and making the food. Wow. And for five years, as I was attempting to make my way, not knowing how to make my way, he just supported me at every stage. I now, uh, to his chagrin, call him one of my mentors because without knowing it, he gave me room to fail over and over and over again. And I'd make a, you know, a progress. I'd make one step forward and two steps back. And he was right there to pick me up until I finally got a legitimate job. And where did you land? What was the first gig that you were doing? My first gig is that I was the road manager and sound man of a wacky conglomeration of jazz musicians for a composer called Carla Blay, who is still a fantastic composer, wacky band. And that led me through one thing to another. I won't even bore you with all the details. <laughs> to working as the promotion production person at a country music radio station in New York City. Okay. So and that was the beginning. Quite a few years in music, right? And then yeah. ultimately make the transition to television and yeah. pretty pretty uh, fittingly or appropriately at MTV. Yeah, I right? was the first employee. So how did that come about? How did you become MTV's first ever creative director? The guy in radio who I worked for was a genius and loon at the same time and really became my first professional mentor. He was like unbelievable. To this day, 40 years later, I don't go through a day without very specifically referencing something he taught me and got me going. But because he was a handful, uh, we fell out at one point and stopped talking, which ended up being for like two years. And in the middle of the two years, another radio guy calls me up. I'm 27 at the time, this guy is 25. He had been a colleague of my mentor. And he said, hey, uh, I just started in cable TV, which I didn't really know what that was. And he said, I heard you might wanna come and work for me. I'm like, uh, no, I watch TV, I don't make it. And I had no desire to make it. I didn't even have a desire to make the promo spots that I made in radio, I wanted to be a record producer. He said, look, why don't you come and talk to me and let's, let's just chat a little bit. So we grabbed a cup. And I remembered something my mentor had taught me, which is the job didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was the boss. And this 25 year old I noticed was smarter than the boss I had in radio. And I said, working for the smart guy is better than working for the big guy. And I went back, I talked to a friend and made a list of pros and cons and the pro list was really long. The con list was really short. The end of the con list, the last thing is you'll never work in music again because the job he was offering me was to be the promotion director for a subscription movie channel called The Movie Channel and to make the promos for The Movie Channel. I barely knew what television was, no less how to make it. And, uh, you know, May 5th, 1980, I reported for work, um, started making the promos for The Movie Channel. And about a month later, a memo lands on my desk. A memo had gone out to everybody in the place. And um, this boss of mine, his name's Bob Pittman, now the CEO of iHeartMedia. In the memo, he said, you know, we've started the movie channel and the next channel we're gonna start is the music channel. 
and it'll be like this. It was a page and a half, and it laid out what MTV was for the next 10 years in a page and a half. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I march into his office, and I said, what's this about? He explains it to me. I said, well, you know, you got to hire me for that. He goes, what do you mean? I said to him, look, really clearly, I know music better than anybody on this floor. I know it better than you. He goes, what are you talking about? I walked in this morning with Musician Magazine. It was a music magazine at the time. You walked in with Variety. Like, I'm your guy. He goes, you're right. Okay, you're in. And I said, oh, great. Should I find somebody to replace me at the movie channel? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. You do that job too. And all of a sudden, I was being underpaid for one job that now I was being underpaid for two. Because <laughs> it was, you know, it was the equivalent of what is now startup culture. Sure. Right. I was making intern wages when the equivalent position at a local TV station was making twice as much as I was. And, you know, I didn't care. That's right. That's living magic. the dream. There yeah, we go. Exactly. Good. So during your time there, you know, you were responsible for the now iconic mutating MTV logo, the I Want My MTV ad campaign. Tell us more about that experience, how it unfolded over the next few years. Yeah, it will. You know, um, because I'm arrogant and my boss was kind of arrogant, this was a small startup, but it was run by people who had run CBS before us and they hired all these other people and there was a department for everything. But my boss and I did not trust any of them. And so when it came time for putting everything together, I'd go to him and I'd go, well, who's gonna do the logo? He goes, oh, you are. I said, well, what about the creative services department? Oh, they're idiots, you know, you do it. I didn't know how to do a logo. I didn't know almost what it was. And I had learned finally a little bit about what graphic design was by reading a monograph of a guy who has been one of the most famous graphic designers in the world, uh, Milton Glaser. And I was like overwhelmed by his intelligence and his design. I said, oh, you know, I should go to Milton Glaser. And I said, well, we don't have any money. I can't give the most famous designer no money. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, if I go to Milton Glaser, he's gonna get all the credit. And I, I'd like a little credit. And by the way, my neighbor growing up that I've known since I'm four, Frank Olinsky, he has a little graphic design firm. And by the way, he knows more about music than I do. He introduced me to The Who and to Jeff Beck and to The Monkees, you know, and to The Mothers of Invention. I'll just ask Frank to do it. So I go to Frank. He had a tiny studio behind a Tai Chi studio above a pharmacy on 6th Avenue in New York. I explained to him what we were doing. They were like, yeah, we'll do it. They didn't ask me what the budget was, which I had none. They didn't ask me what the deadline was. I had none. And over a year that we worked on doing the logo, they probably came up and I rejected 500 designs. Until the last day, maybe two months before we went on the air, and I had to have something. And they came in with a pile of designs I went through them all, no, 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 no. At the bottom is a crumpled up piece of tracing paper that has been flattened out with this giant M and a scribbled TV. I went, oh, that one. They're like, and you could tell that Frank in particular wasn't all that happy. It turned out that one of the other people had done it and he didn't like it too much. I don't know, we, we argue about it to this day about what really happened. 
He said, well, how come this one? And I mentioned that my mentor in radio had told me that the most important thing in graphic design is to dominate the space, the physical space. And I said, you know, the TV set in those days was a ratio of four to three. And if you put the M in it, it would fill the whole screen. And we were in an environment of 30 whole TV channels, you know, up from two. <laughs> and I said, this way people will pay attention because I'll just slap it on there. It'll be so big, everyone will notice it and that'll be that. And that became the beginning of the MTV logo. Then I said, well, you know, a logo has to have official colors. What are the colors gonna be? So they come up with five or six boards of all different color schemes. And I put them up on my, on my bulletin board because I can't decide. I, had, I have a really hard time making those kinds of final decisions. And finally, the day came where we had to make a final decision and I looked and I don't know what snapped in my head. It was something about the way Frank had drawn a lot of the sketches to begin with. And I said, why don't we just use them all at once all the time? We're in the TV business. We're not in the magazine business. We're not in the still business. If we just use all of them all the time, it will have the freneticness of rock and roll, which we really need to have. And we will be able to be the first ones really in the TV business rather than a graphic designer making an image. You hand it to a filmmaker who has to figure out how to make it move. We'll just from the beginning, it's always gonna move. And that was the thing that became that logo. I mean, it complicated and simple as that. Sure. You know, it was an accident. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. So you spent three years at MTV, yeah. right? And then are there any kind of other noteworthy projects that happened during your time there? Well, I think the biggest one was I want my MTV. Yeah. Um, my mentor, who I wasn't talking to, is the smartest media guy, both on a creative level and strategic level ever. Our big boss had forced us the first year to use a very famous advertising agency who was the equivalent of Milton Glaser called Ogilvy. And uh, we hired Ogilvy and they just did shit work like over and over and over again. They would take people from their creative department who had been to a rock concert and say, here, they're your people. And I'm like, they're not my people. Like, you know, they're like, trying to tell us they're cool, but they work in an ad agency. How cool could they be? You know, and I would really insult them with this uh, over that. But then they would insult the logo back and tell me that it was a piece of crap and who was ever going to like this. And it broke all the logo rules and all this, you know, kind of nonsense. So we convinced the big boss to fire Ogilvy and hire my mentor who had just started an ad agency, had gotten out of radio, started an ad agency. He had a very bad reputation in the radio business because he was a very volatile person and drove everyone crazy. And I convinced everybody that I could handle him. And he and his partner came up with what became I Want My MTV. Uh, my partner and I finalized the execution of it because they didn't know how to edit you know, for a rock and roll channel. You know, it became such an iconic campaign that if you Google, I want my MTV today, you will get hundreds of thousands of results, even though the campaign probably hasn't run since, you know, 1986. It's really, it was a wild time. So that was great. But, you know, ultimately I kept getting promoted and I finally got the corporate creative job 
and I was uh, so bored out of my mind, I was going to kill myself. And I went to my, the creative director who worked for me, who was one of my oldest friends, eventually became my brother-in-law. And I said, I got to get out of here. And he said, well, when? I said, as soon as I figure out how we're going to make some money. And about a year later, we left. Started Fred Allen. And Fred Allen was a media branding agency. Uh, and you consulted for a number of clients, including several of the Viacom subsidiaries. Yeah. And perhaps maybe the greatest claim to fame during that period is your work with Nickelodeon. Yeah. So tell us about you know how you got those projects and what you started doing with Nick. Well, look, long story short, because I can go on for hours about this, Nickelodeon was the number 30 cable network out of 30. They had one show that had a rating. It was basically a door opener for cable salesmen to convince people to subscribe to the movie channel. It had no commercials. It was seven days a week. Look at this wonderful thing we have for your children. Can you let us in the door? And so we can sell you the movie channel. After four years, we had sold the movie channel. The company had sold the movie channel because it wasn't working. Sold it to Showtime. It still exists, but it, you barely know it. it's alive. And what was left in the company was MTV and Nickelodeon. Everybody thought that they would be a failure because no one thought ad-supported cable would amount to anything. And my MTV boss, Bob Pittman, called me up, said, look, Nickelodeon's on life support. It's lost what we would call now the equivalent of maybe $250 million. And if we don't fix it, it's going away. I said, how are you going to fix it? He goes, well, we have to run ads, you know, on what had been a commercial free thing. And we have to get a rating. One show gets a rating. Everything else gets zeros. And I said, well, what are you calling me for? <laughs> I don't know anything about kids TV. And I, I don't like that Nickelodeon stuff. And he goes, well, look, you'll do better than them because I fired everyone I can fire. There's just a skeleton crew left. Tell me if I have to fire anyone else and just fix it. I'm like, I, uh, I'm on a, I'm on a, I, I had no idea. And he said, oh, just so you know, I had to cut the marketing budget. I said, to what? He goes, zero. And I had to cut the programming budget. What? Zero. I'm like, oh my God, what are we going to do? So we go in to see the woman who is now running the place. Her name is Jerry Laybourne. She ended up being the soul and heart of Nickelodeon for, you know, forever. We said, Jerry, what's the problem? He said, well, we don't know. You know, we are the only people who actually research the kids' shows that we run. Everyone else just buys what they think is right and they put it on. We actually go to kids before we buy a show to figure out whether they like it or not. We know that they like it. They just don't seem to watch it. Like, hmm, that's interesting. What, what else do you know? Well, our research shows us that 44% of all cable homes tune into Nickelodeon at least once a week and they stay for less than six minutes. What do you figure that is? Well, our research also shows that whether a kid is 11 or they're five, the reason they say they don't like Nickelodeon is it's for babies. A kid's definition of a baby is anyone who is a year younger than them. <laughs> but we know the shows are good. So we did a little analysis and to make a long story short, we realized that because they had run no commercials, they also were running virtually no promotion for the shows. And they were running promotion as if they were a television station. And in a world where the average home in America had two television stations, that meant that they were promoting, you know, maybe 30 shows a week to people episode by episode. This week at eight o'clock, a very special episode, James gets his hair cut. Well, in a world of 30 channels of everybody's promoting their shows, 
Now they're asking the audience to think about 300 shows a week. We knew that that wasn't going to work. So we took our model that we had had at MTV, which was MTV had no shows. It just had music videos. Our job at MTV is every three minutes there was what's called a tune-out op opportunity, right? When the video's over, it goes to black and people want to tune away. We knew our job at MTV was to extend the time that they watched because the longer people watched, the happier they were and the more likely they were to see a commercial. So at Nickelodeon, I walked in, uh, Alan and I walked into the next meeting and we said, look, lo and behold, we found $25 million in marketing money. And they're like all scratching their heads. What do you mean? I said, well, you're going to run commercials. They're going to cost $500 a piece. You're going to give us two minutes of promotional time every hour, seven days a week. That's 168 spots a week times 50 weeks times $500. That's $25 million. Oh, okay. And what are you going to do with that $25 million? Well, we're not going to promote shows. You have to promote shows. Well, we don't believe that you have to promote shows. You have to get them into the store before you can promote the products. And what we are going to do, we are going to make Nickelodeon the greatest place for kids in the history of television. We are going to get people to fall in love with Nickelodeon. So we hired a bunch of people who had never made television before, that, but they were creative writers. We taught them how to do television. We used, we have a branding strategy we called the Promise Strategy. We created four promises for Nickelodeon. They're the first network for kids. They're the only network for kids. That's what they were at the time. And we said to our creative team, you have to do the promise exactly the way we have written it with these words. Up until the promise, go crazy. Make the wildest, craziest stuff that you know will never be allowed on television, but that you will have the greatest time making and people have the greatest time watching. And if we repeat those promises, four promises times 168 times a week, times 50 weeks a year, we will get people to fall in love. And lo and behold, uh, we started in June of 1984, where they were the number 30 cable network. And by January of 1985, they were the number one network with, instead of less than six minutes a week, it was 30 minutes a week that they were watching. And Nickelodeon stayed the number one network for the next 25 years. Incredible. It was an unbelievable experience. So people start to take notice. And from what I understand, Nickelodeon carved out this identity of being the place for kids and not for what parents wanted their kids to watch, right? It was fun content. It was a little edgier than, say, like a Disney Channel, right? I'm not sure that it really was. But um, one of the other things that Jerry told us in the first meeting, he said, you know, in our promos, we keep saying that we're fun and we're not. So we said, okay, look, here's what you have to do. First of all, we're banning the word fun. No one can ever use the word fun. But we will find people who are fun and they will have fun making the work and therefore the audience will have fun. And then there's one last thing. If there's one thing a kid hates, it's being called a kid. We're going to make kids proud to be kids. It's about being kids, not being parents, not being school teachers, not being teenagers. It's being a kid is the greatest thing in the world. 
And I like to think that what we did is we provided kids with an excuse to be proud of the fact that they were kids, which made them fall in love with Nickelodeon. And then Jerry and her team had picked amazing shows. They really were wonderful shows. And they discovered those shows and they fell in love with Nickelodeon and eventually started falling in love with the shows. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit more and also we'll come back to your background, but maybe to flash forward in time, kids content has been in this period of decline for the past few years. Kids aren't watching television anymore. They're watching YouTube and they're- Well, I was gonna say kids content is not in decline. Sure, kids kids television, right? Children's entertainment on traditional traditional linear linear TV. Uh, And you see Nickelodeon and Disney Channel and everyone else bleeding viewership, bleeding subscribers. Do you think that they're finally turning it around? I mean, you know, Viacom has hired Brian Robbins now to come in, lead Nickelodeon and do kind of a similar turnaround. Do you think that there's a chance for that, that it's still being effective? You know, I don't know that the idea of, quote, turning around linear television is ever going to quite happen. Um, uh, One of the things that Bob Pittman taught me early in our time together is that convenience always wins. And linear television is not the most convenient thing in the world. On the other hand, linear television has some advantages um, that at the moment, about the only place that can compete with those advantages is Twitch, which is it's live. The problem is, is that people don't work, do linear television like it's live unless it's a sports event or the Oscars or something. So I do think that there are some advantages that they can put into the system that can help them work. The other thing is that Brian uh, and his team are show people and Uh, I think that we can be confident that after a 10-year or 15-year time where, frankly, I think that the programmatic choices and executions that Nickelodeon made were maybe not the best in their history, that you will see more and more shows that people have a chance to fall in love with. And then their parent company, Viacom, and what looks to be a merger, by the time this goes on the air, that merger might have happened with Mm -hmm. CBS, Um, they're making a lot of moves. They made a move with Pluto TV. You're going to see lots more moves. And I I think if they can inject love back into the system, I'm like overly obsessed with the concept of people falling in love, and not just romantically, but, you know, in all sorts of different ways. If they can do things that people love, they're gonna um, maximize their opportunity to build their business. And I think that that's what you have to always be able to do. In the final analysis, strategy, technology, all those things are really, really critical unless people aren't in love. you know. And one thing I can say for sure in the world that we live in, all the SVODs right now are copying Netflix And Netflix is doing nothing to make people fall in love with shows. They're doing things to make people fall in like with Netflix. And there is a real big difference. And it is a huge opportunity gap that no one is going into. Hmm. And the reason they're not going into it, in my humble opinion, is that Netflix is the leader on every level for really great reasons. They were the first mover. They did the best technology. They spent faster and better than anyone else in the space. And everyone in the traditional media business is so freaked out that they think that Netflix has the secret. So what they're doing is doing exactly what Netflix did. And what Netflix 
has is first mover advantage. No one else has it. And no one else is doing anything significant other than putting shows on. And, you know, it's an interesting thing when, when the media is run by people who make shows, they truly believe that if you make it, they will come. Whereas the truth of the matter, like I just mentioned what we did at MTV and Nickelodeon, I made no shows. I had nothing to do with making shows for many, many years. We had a different job. Our job was to get people to fall in love with us and then we could lead them to the shows. No one in the SVOD space is working at all, forget working hard, they're not working at all and there is no indication that they're going to work at all to make people fall in love to get them to these great shows. So there's a lot there. I want to unpack this a little sure. bit more. Let's start with the Netflix piece, right? Netflix, for the first time in recent history, reported a, a loss in subscriber growth for the quarter, right? So the street gets upset. It loses a lot of share value. Well, share value and human value do not resemble each other. Correct, right? They're not correlated. One short-term versus long-term planning. Do you think Netflix should be doing more to get people to fall in love either with the Netflix brand or with its programming slate? Well, you know, Netflix through no fault of their own, is associated with the most intense human activity of all time, which is sex, right? Netflix and chill, <laughs> right, has associated their brand with something that no other media in the history of the universe has ever done. So I'm not worried about their brand thing for the moment, right? And they have first mover advantage, right? So that is really big. They do nothing to get you to fall in love with a show. Their marketing strategy seems to be put out a press release with a star's name in it and then let the world like discover. And is that just the Silicon Valley approach to creating what is now essentially a media and entertainment company is that for to Netflix, it's all inventory. They don't necessarily care about a particular show. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I, I'm hesitant. It, it, it's really like a fool's errand to criticize people that have succeeded to the level that they have. And, and my issue isn't criticism, I think, though it sounds like it, as much as it's lost opportunity. You know, to me, the thing that separates out media in the internet age from media before is tools to help build community. And, you know, building community is the phrase of the, of the era but to Fred's really simplistic mind, it's community is people love this. In my radio days, in my cable TV days, here are the tools we had, external tools. We had phone calls that people could make and we had postcards that people could send us, right? That, but we, I was in communitized media from the time I was in college radio to country radio to MTV to Nicola. It's always communitized. We created community why? Because we had no choice. We had to compete. And the way we were going to compete is gather up a group of like-minded people, show them why that they should be in love, and then constantly deliver on that love every day until now MTV doesn't do it and now Nickelodeon doesn't do it. But that's a whole, that's 50 years, right? Uh, one of the reasons I fell in love with YouTube is that they were giving me tools. They were, we always looked at YouTube more as a social network than a video sharing platform, which is really dull. But the idea that 
you know, just in something simple, like even the way they've screwed up comments, but with comments, you can create a dialogue with your actual fans and I can go on there and they'll go, look, you're, you're here? Really? Like you? You know, the same way that I would go in every Saturday to MTV and go through the mailbag and read things and occasionally call somebody and go, hey, I hear you're a fan, you know, that type of thing. So Netflix isn't doing that, but they have all these advantages. No one else has them. Yes, fine, Disney has Star Wars. Yes, they have Mickey Mouse. Yes, they have this, that, and the, they have Marvel, you know, whatever it might be. That's great. But there are just these lost opportunities. In an interactive medium, to not have a dialogue, like a direct dialogue with people, just seems like idiotic to me. So what Netflix becomes is giant blockbuster. Rows and rows of boxes and I have to choose my box on my own by what they decided to put in front of me. It just, I mean, for advanced technology, it seems like the most analog dumb way to help me make a decision. So I want to connect some of the dots here, right? So first is the point that the internet, more than anything else, has enabled niche content to, to find a home, right? So that now we've created or, these or super niche fan content communities. To become mass content. Exactly, right? Yeah. And, and we've seen that. And so when I think of that in an SVOD content, it brings to mind something like Elation and Crunchyroll, yeah. right? Which have, you know, found this, this anime community that's underneath the surface, and now all of a sudden it's, it's mainstream. The same thing has happened with gaming over the past, you know, few decades. It's magic. It's unbelievable. And YouTube did that in a fascinating way from 05 to present, right? Because, you know, you wouldn't think that craft channels or DIY home makeovers or essentially reality TV and lifestyle vloggers would strike a chord and create these resonant communities online. Well, vloggers, I, I, I'll disagree with you only there because vloggers are talk shows. Sure. You know, vloggers are Oprah. I mean, none of them are as good as Oprah, but uh -huh. that's a whole other story. But you know the truth is that you're you're absolutely right in in the in the broad sense of the thing, which is gatekeepers didn't make a decision, humans made a decision. First, the human who decided to do something, and then the human who looked at it and went, "Yeah, that's for me." You know, I think it's the greatest thing in the world. It's so exciting. Coming back to the Netflix yeah. point, when we when you show up and choose to watch entertainment programming on Netflix, you still need to make a decision, right? Yes. Netflix has a really powerful recommendation algorithm. They have all this data. They're suggesting to you new content that they're trying to drive traction towards, but also shows similar to other shows based on your viewing habits. But I guess to your point, it's still an older framework of you know how we should make programming decisions. To take an analog example from the music world, right? When we go to Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, everything is still organized by artist, by album, right? As if you had a discography of albums on a shelf. We're not really engaging with music by mood or by situation, which I think is kind of where music will evolve. Who knows? I mean, yeah, maybe. But, you know, my first internet partner, Emil Rensing, who's 25 years younger than me, had come out of early AOL. And one day he said to me, you know, I don't understand why television doesn't organize itself like the what was then the AOL homepage. We're talking in the late 90s. Sure. I said, well, I don't know anything about the AOL homepage except what I see, what, what, what's going on. So the way the AOL homepage was organized, you might be too young to have seen it, is there was a big picture, three smaller pictures, and then a ring of about a dozen even smaller pictures that went around all these things. He said, there is a transparent overlay at the mothership. 
and they're looking who's clicking on which box the most. And they're in real time, one of the little boxes can become the big box from one second to the next, depending on how many clicks it's getting. And that they're constantly reorganizing what to pay attention to by size. Not just by is Julia Roberts in the box or is Jennifer Lawrence in the box or is you know uh, the Rolling Stones in the box or whatever it might be. It's also size makes you click differently. I don't understand, says he to me, why television doesn't organize that way. So when I started seeing the shelves that Netflix has and all that type of stuff, I was like, yeah, he's right. How come they're all the same little stuff? All of a sudden, I started seeing Netflix now give you posters, right? When you're, when you're scrolling through. So and either, similar on YouTube, right? When you go to the homepage, you know, you have these kind of threads of similar Yeah, but no content. big boxes. Yeah. Like, no, no. And it's not changing in sure. real time where, you know, like, I mean, I mean, I'm sure it is changing in real time as well. It's in the little boxes. But it was a, it was a really, it was a, Amol has the most logical consumer and technology brain of anyone I've ever known. And he really had spotted something that to this day, it's almost like Netflix didn't know it and is discovering it. Oh, if I make the thing bigger, people are more likely to click on it. So there is still, you know, there, there is an old saw in politics that I've been using a lot in the last week which is uh, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes, right? Like everything old is new again, but in a new way, you know, kind of thing. And that's what I'm starting to see. And by the way, now that Netflix has these big posters, probably everyone else will start doing it too, who, yep. you know, or if they're smart. So what, in your mind, does the future of television or subscription video look like? Who's creating programming uh, brands that people will fall in love with? I think Crunchyroll has done an amazing job I'm having a tough negotiation with them now. So if they're listening, I hope that they will like learn and finish my negotiation. <laughs> but I love them. And by the way, I, you know, I love them, even though me personally, I could care less about anime. It's just not my thing. But then again, a lot of the programming we make is not my thing. I'm a 68 year old man that has, you know, whatever background I have and brings me to another place. But I'm in love with all of the young people in my office who love anime. Their excitement and their passion, you know, transfers to me every day, which is why I love going to work, um, even though I don't understand half of what's going on. So I think Crunchyroll's done an amazing job. I do believe that the future is not everything for everybody. Like every, you know, the big players, all copying Netflix, have decided, oh, we have to do what they do, everything for everybody. If you look at Netflix as a network rather than as a cable, the equivalent of a cable system, okay, got it. You know, if they're a cable system, having all these different opportunities are there, but they're doing very little dif differentiate with them within the so-called cable system. So I do believe that when the probably $100 billion gets dumped on the table in the next five years in terms of everybody competing to be everything to everybody, you're going to see a resurgence of specialty. Maybe I'm just biased. I've spent my whole life in specialty and I've seen the advantages that come from being specialized. But I do know that in my own subscription habits, my subscription habits are falling into what my traditional television habits were. I have a few big networks and then I have a bunch of specialties. In my case, I love crime drama. 
And so I subscribed to uh, Acorn TV, which is crime drama for old people, right? And I really like it, and I don't care if they don't have a show on this week, because next week, you know, they'll have a show that I want. I'm a subscriber to Crunchyroll, not only because they're a partner of mine, but I think that they're exciting, and they feel exciting, and they're excited. I just think that, you know, the mall always gives way to the mom and pop. Right, and even though they might put mom and pop out of business for a few years, there's a new mom and pop that shows up. We're seeing it in the collapse of Barnes and Noble and the new rise of indie bookshops again, which were declared dead a few years ago. Right, so I do think everything old is new again. I do think that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I do not think that video is gonna be any different. Technology does not get rid of the laws of nature. It just makes them easier. What happens to the basic cable package? It just becomes unbundled. Do people end up paying about the same amount, less, more, I as a result we're of all subscribing? Pay more. Oh, okay. Because you're okay. going to subscribe, you know, for sports over here and you know, true crime and news I, and politics. I just think that if you give people what they love, they're willing to pay up. So I remember my first cable bill was ten bucks a month, and I thought it was outrageous that I had to pay just to get a signal. And then I added HBO. I've been a subscriber to HBO for 40, 50 years, I don't know, 40 years. And uh, I never watch it. And I'm still subscribing. It's like the whole thing's ridiculous. But the, why? Because they gave me stuff that I loved enough, often enough, that it was worth it. And now, well, God knows what my cable bill is, right? The idea that we're just going to replace one for the other and like we spend $100 now, so we'll spend $100 in the future just seems idiotic to me. The reason we're willing to spend what we spend on cable is over the years, it continued to satisfy us better and better and better until it didn't. So I look at what we're spending now, whatever the average is, you probably know the number better than I do. Whatever the average is now, for me, is the baseline. And then we're going to go up from there. Yeah. I know it sounds outrageous given especially where our economy is, how many people are below the average line in the economy. There are all those realities. I still think, you know, when I went to college, the idea that you would have a television set in your college dorm was outrageous. Now, well, I mean, over the ensuing years, people had three TVs and now they have their computer. I just think that satisfying our needs rather than our wants will always make us pay a little bit more because we are highly satisfied. I think that's true for a couple of reasons. One, people are spending more time on media and entertainment, right? And that trend is increasing as a result of additional fragmentation, right? So mm -hmm. there's more competition for uh, entertainment time. It's not just, I'm going to watch linear broadcast or cable television. It's, I'm going to you know, read a book, I'm going to play a video game, I'm going to go to sure. a concert, right? So there's there's more uh, things competing for your entertainment time. And then the other fact is we now have better ways through digital media to more effectively monetize the super fan. So if I care, you know, a lot more about whatever gaming, and you care a lot more about true crime, I don't want to pay 10 bucks a month for true crime. I'm going to pay $1 a month. You might be willing to pay 50 bucks a month. Exactly. Right. And the, the other thing that has happened is every age of technology narrows the audience, which means that people who create are creating for that narrower audience. And if they're creating specifically for the narrower audience, 
they're creating something that the narrow audience loves more. So the audience might be smaller, but if the programming is correct, their love for it is deeper. And if the love for it is deeper, the opportunity to monetize or whatever, however we want to talk about money, increases. And you've already seen it in this internet age. To your point, whether it's on YouTube or it's on Hulu or whatever it is, I can zero in on something not that I like, not that's okay, but something that really means something to me, however I define meaning. And now I am going to support that. We, we did a show on our YouTube channel, Cartoon Hangover, about five years ago. We did a short. It was called Bee and Puppy Cat. We, in our animation business, have been increasingly going to women creators who we thought were underrepresented in the marketplace, people who have come up with wonderful stuff for us. Most of it didn't quite get there. Bee and Puppy Cat, created by an unbelievably talented woman named Natasha Allegri, created this short for us. We put it on, our audience went crazy, and we had no money to do anything with the fact that they were crazy. So we went to Kickstarter. We put up what we thought was an outrageous number. It was the would have been the highest number that had ever supported an animated series at that time. Not, you know, hoping against hope we were going to, like, make the number. We overshot the number by 30%. Why? Because Natasha had zeroed in on something that we didn't particularly recognize. But when the audience got it, and by the way, it was men and women. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't predominantly women. It wasn't predominantly men. They understood that voice immediately. And they reacted to that voice so deeply that when we said, boy, we could really use this to give you more, they showed up in droves and supported it in a way that we didn't know that it deserved that support. We didn't know how much it would cost to be able to do that. We didn't know what the audiences need. And they told us. And they told us loudly and clearly. We're in a magic moment, but it's still sorting itself out. And it's going to sort itself out probably long after I'm gone, which is a shame. It's why I'm excited about this. But, it, you know, these things take a long time to really sort themselves out and the, and the world comes in. But the one thing I think that is absolutely certain is the, the day has changed. The world has been turned upside down. My obsession of the week is the entire story of Little Nas X and Old Town Road and, and the record. And the thing that really put the capper on it for me, I won't repeat the story because everyone in your audience knows it, is that the latest remix is done by a Korean rapper from BTS. So not only has Little Nas, the kid from Georgia, bought a $30 sample from a producer in Europe and come up with a record that caused it to be blacklisted because he was black and rapping, you know, off of country music, like all that stuff. He's also globalized the whole thing, made the record company that amplified his thing realize that maybe the business they used to be in isn't the business they're in. I mean, it, it's crazy time only in the most exciting way. I feel so lucky that I don't plan to ever retire 
because every day shows up with something new and exciting. And when you were you know, back at MTV or at, at Nickelodeon, uh, you didn't have the luxury, other than maybe that fan mail, of hearing what the audience had to say. Now you get real-time feedback on that from YouTube, from it's the audience. Yeah. And the opportunities to figure out new ways and interesting ways to do it have changed. And, you know, my core business is uh, animation, you know, at this point on the production side. So let's um, talk about that because I know yeah. we got a, a bit away from your background. But you uh, spent nine years running the Fred Allen Agency. Yep. And then you became the final president of Hanna-Barbera Cartoons for Turner until yep. that was sold to Time Warner. And then you launched Frederator, which yep. is kind of your namesake. So yep. tell us a little bit more you know, about your entree into becoming a creator of animated content. Well, long story short, uh, I had this agency. We were the first branding agency in the media business ever. It got kind of boring over the years when we were just making money um, because instead of being the only people doing it in the world, other people started going, hey, we can do that too. And I don't like to compete in the middle of the scrum. I like to go around the edges and that's what we had done when we started this branding agency. But now that, that was getting crowded and we were getting bored. My partner and I were fighting. Uh, he had eloped with my sister, and I knew I had to see him on a holiday anyway, so we didn't need to see each other at the office every day. And so we closed the company, and you know, a day after I announced that we were closing, I got a call from Turner saying that they had bought Hanna-Barbera, the president of Turner Entertainment is a friend of mine. And um, I said, yeah, I, you know, I read about it in the paper. He said, you know, it's a train wreck over there. They haven't had a hit since the Smurfs in 1981. I said, oh, gee, that's too bad. I'm sure you'll do great. He goes, well, you know, I really want to close the studio, but Ted won't let me. You know, we're starting Cartoon Network, and we got to fix the studio. Why don't you come and run it? And it turned out that I had been the only person to mention the words Hannah and Barbara in a sentence to him about two years before, something I won't bore you with. And uh, I said, well, you know, I, I don't really make cartoons. You know, at every point in my career trajectory, my work trajectory, when a left turn showed up, I wanted to go right. And I said, I don't really make cartoons the same way I told Bob Pittman, I don't really make television. He said, well, you do all that stuff with the MTV logo and the Nickelodeon. I said, yeah, we make the logo wiggle for 10 seconds. That's not cartoons. He said, look, how bad could it be? They haven't had a hit in 10 years. If you don't have a hit, nobody's gonna blame you. And if you do, everyone will think you're amazing. I was getting divorced. I didn't like my partner anymore. He didn't like me. Uh, I didn't like my clients anymore, uh, even though I had hired most of them into their jobs. So the idea of moving 3,000 miles away into a whole new business seemed like great. So I, you know, I moved to Los Angeles. I walk into Hanna-Barbera for the first time and I'm the president of the company. It's the weirdest thing. I'd passed by the building for 20 years going, gee, is Huckleberry Hound in there? You know, is Fred Flintstone in there? And then here I am. It was a shell of its former self. And I saw an opportunity once again by going and talking to all like Hannah and Barbera and all of the guys who had invented the animation business in the 1930s. I learned all sorts of stuff and applied it. And lo and behold, we had six hits, you know, that came out of the time I was there. It seemed like a cool thing to do. And then Ted sold the company to Time Warner. And I knew I didn't want to work for Time Warner. I was a bad employee, basically. And working for a lunatic genius like Ted Turner is one thing. Working for the man is a whole other thing. So one thing led to another. I called my friends at Viacom. Uh, I said, oh, I'm going to start this production company. 
said, well, we don't really want you to produce for us. You're, you know, from, for us, you're a consultant. Why don't you consult with us? I'm not going to consult again ever. You know, all consulting is, is you pay me a lot of money to not listen to my ideas. I want to do my ideas. So we made a compromise where I said, okay, I'll consult for you, like, you know, if you need it, and I'll produce for you if you need it. And they went, okay, we can live with that. And I started Frederator now 21 years ago as an animation company. I took the tricks of the trade I had learned in Hanna-Barbera and started making hits for Nickelodeon. We had a great run. Interestingly, I had a twist in there. I had Emil Rensing, I mentioned, you know, as my partner, a, a, a computer engineer. We brought in an intern at one point, a 14-year-old who had dropped out of high school, who became another guide to this old man in this forest of the internet, uh, who invented Tumblr at the desk next to me, David Karp, a phenomenal young talent. And we started finding our way from just doing animation production to going, what can we do with this internet thing? You know, what does that have to do with us? And sure enough, we launched a video podcast on iTunes about the same moment that YouTube existed. And Emil and I realized that we had a million downloads our first month. I was like, oh man, this is cool. Like a million of anything is good. Why don't we multiply it by a hundred times and start a million of these, or a hundred of these things. And we started a company called Next New Networks, which ended up becoming not just the first real programmer in the business. We weren't producers producing a vlog. We were media people who were thinking about the ecosystem. We basically invented what became the multi-channel network. We were the first people to start signing other channels to our existence because the idea that YouTube that was loading four or 500 hours of programming every minute onto YouTube, we realized that our global job was to be curators of all of that stuff rather than just creators of all of it. Uh, we sold that company, you know, back to YouTube in 2011. Frederator then started adding YouTube things into it because the idea of starting my own network in the television age didn't seem possible but with the cost of distribution basically going to zero the cost of production coming down dramatically I saw an opportunity to entrepreneurially become my own media mogul we did that and then about three years ago uh, an old friend of mine from Canada the guy Michael Hirsch basically who invented the modern animation business in Canada, realized that there was an opportunity up there to take the advantages of the Canadian tax system and attract co-production partners from across the world, created Nelvana Animation, which is still one of the leading animation companies in Canada. Which was acquired um, by Chorus Entertainment. He sold it to yep. Chorus. He started with two buddies uh, out of college in the 1970s, sold it to Chorus in 2000. Uh, did really, really well, then went on to form a new company called Cookie Jar, became the first major supplier of animation to Netflix when they started out, uh, merged it into a company called DHX, which became the biggest, thanks to Michael's library, the biggest independent kids library in the world to this day. 
tried to acquire Frederator. I was not interested in being acquired by DHX. I was interested in working with Michael. And when he left about a year later, we formed this new company, Wow Unlimited Media. And we acquired a production studio in, in Vancouver called uh, Mainframe and Rainmaker, which is one of the biggest quality service CG studios in the world. And part of that is that what we saw and now are seeing is every major player in this new world, we'll call it the SVOD world, but it's the VOD world, right? Because there's AVOD and there is SVOD in it understands that kids in animation hold the same role that I mentioned before that Nickelodeon held, which is a door opener for families to make a new media decision in their lives. And in this case, a new subscription decision. So you see the kids tile on Netflix when you start up. You see that Hulu, you know, our show Adventure Time has been the number one animated show on Hulu for several years running. Those things are all helping these SVOD players, Warner Media has not only Warner Animation, they have Cartoon Network, they have the Looney Tunes library, they, they have the Hanna-Barbera library, Comcast acquired DreamWorks. Animation, family programming, kids programming are at the center of everyone's strategy, though no one likes to talk about it. It is the most untold story in the growth of this new business, the same way it was an untold story in the growth of the movie business, the broadcast business, the cable business. People would rather talk about MTV than Nickelodeon, right? Because MTV was cool and Nickelodeon was children. Who wants to talk about children? That exact same thing is happening and we're seeing it. We're not only put, placing more and more shows with partners in this new streaming space, more and more people who need animation done for them. There's a limited amount of people who can make quality animation in the globe because it is a highly skilled job. And they're, you know, making a live action movie, you can take an iPhone and make feature quality material. In animation, you have years of people's training to just get the basic skill that you need and then talent on top of that to make special things. There's only so many of those people in the world, and we have one of the best studios in the world to do it. Is that changing? Do you think animation will get democratized to the same level that you know feature filmmaking or the ability to create content and distribute it as a layperson on something like YouTube has yeah. become? A animation is commoditized in the same way, but quality is never commoditized, sure. right? And the truth is, to get someone to be in love with SpongeBob isn't just you have the idea of SpongeBob, you have to execute. And the truth about animation is that the labor it takes to execute is more highly skilled at the same amount of hours today than it was 100 years ago and will be 100 years from now. You can't commoditize the 20,000 drawings it takes to make every episode of The Simpsons or Family Guy or BM Puppycat or Castlevania that cannot be commoditized because you still have to make those drawings. And that is the plain truth of the matter. Whether you go to Pixar 
these people with pencils and paper who are drawing no matter where you go. So you start Frederator originally as an independent animation studio production. You're responsible for these hits like Cartoon Hangover, Adventure Time, one of my favorites when I was a kid, Fairly Odd Parents. Uh, at the same time, you see what's happening with this interesting internet phenomenon. And then you and Emil and others decide, let's start Next New Networks, acquired by YouTube. And then you say, okay, well, let's do that again, but maybe learn and apply some of these lessons a bit differently. And you do that through Frederator Networks, which is the launch of more of a full-fledged MCN YouTube strategy. Well, you know, the thing is, is that at the beginning, you know, there was a gold rush in the multi-channel network space. And you saw Next New Networks, mm -hmm. Maker, Full Screen. Revision 3. Revision 3. And the first impulse is to just succeed and just survive. And the result was that first level that I was complaining about, Netflix, everything to everybody. I never was comfortable with everything to everybody because I am a focused guy in terms of um, category. And one of the things I liked about the idea of these far-flung independent channels all coming together is how could they help each other, right? At Next New Networks, the, I think the major reason that YouTube acquired us is we wrote a book internally for private consumption about how to succeed on YouTube taking in all of the lessons we had learned from every member of our network and we coalesced it. The Creator Academy, I suppose, yeah, exactly. kind of evolved and the into YouTube, that. Yep. Uh, playbook. playbook yep. our, it was literally the Next New Network's employees who, when they went to work for YouTube, wrote all of that stuff and created those programs. It's funny how a lot of the service providers or enterprise companies within the YouTube space seems like end up teaching YouTube more about its platform than, than YouTube. Well, I think that that's <laughs> logical. If you, It is funny, but yeah. it's logical if you think about it. Their specialty is building. Our specialty is using. And using and building have completely two different sets of skills. The same way, by the way, that making a TV show and putting it on a media outlet and making it succeed do not resemble each other. It is not as simple you make a good show and people will watch it. It is all of the things that happen after the show is made. So anyway, these are different skill sets. So um, I always thought that having a network meant that the network members could help each other, but I wasn't really sure how a yoga instructor could help an automotive channel or a beauty channel except in the broadest sense. So we decided to be focused around animation mm -hmm. and what I call animation adjacent. Video games are animation adjacent. People who draw are animation adjacent. You know, there are a bunch of things that, you know, and, and we started finding that by putting them together, one of our animators in Chile could help one of our animators in Australia succeed better, and which has really worked beautifully. And we have a smaller network, but we have a network that is focused on growing people rather than just like, how can you get fast dollars? And creating that sense of community that we've kind of talked exactly. about throughout the conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm interested by another thing that you, you said, which is animation has underpinned a lot of the growth of television and the motion picture business, yeah. even though a lot of people don't like to talk about yeah. it. So I'm curious to kind of get your perspective on two phenomenons. The first of which is, you know, this recent remake of all the classic Disney films. You've got Lion King leading at the box office right which, now. Which, by the way, is an animated film. We sure. should point out. I don't know, like, 
it's been positioned as a live action film where literally everything in it is like created in a computer. It's all CG. Yeah, yeah exactly. right. But whatever, so, whatever. So I'm interested in that. And then I'm also interested in at some point in time, people realized that animation wasn't just for kids, but it's this powerful form of expression for adults. Yeah. And you've got shows like The Simpsons, right, which yeah. really paved the way. But now you've got, you know, Rick and Morty, all these other incredible adult programming yeah, yeah, yeah. that's done. Castlevania through, show. Yeah, sure. Through yeah, yeah. through animation. So has the aperture on that idea just widened over time or? Well, think know, about it. Uh, let's talk about the difference between your life and my life. When I was 12 and I started having an interest in dating or nascent dating, I should say, and I had an interest in the Beatles, cartoons were left in the playpen, right? My childhood was left behind. I moved into something else. In your life, when you got to be 12 or 13, there was a new animated show for you. Maybe it was The Simpsons. Maybe it was South Park. Maybe it was Beavis and Butthead. Maybe it was the Ambiguously Day duo on Saturday Night Live. And then when you were done with those, there was the next one for you. All the way through your lifetime, you have not said animations for kids. You've said, is this piece of animation for me or not? I don't have the benefit of doing that. And slowly the executives who are making decisions are you rather than me, right? So instead of somebody who goes animations for kids, I make dramas or I make comedies or I make live, you know, whatever it might be, the executives making the gatekeeping decisions have grown up now with the same experience that you had rather than the one that I had or my partner Michael has. And they're now looking at a pitch as to whether it's good or not, now that it's animated or not. So I think that that's literally, you're starting to see that change. We, it took us 10 years to get Castlevania, to find a partner for Castlevania. Why? Because the executives we first pitched it to is like video game, schmidio game. What does that have to do with the movies? Or what does that have to do with series? Now they're executives who have grown up with video games the way you have. I didn't, you know, but they did. And, you know, my colleague, Kevin Coldy, who is the guy who birthed Castlevania as a series, video games are as important to him as animation. And so he, he saw an opportunity 15 years ago to put the two of them together. He was ahead of his time, but we're patient and we hold on to things, you know, long time ago. And so it goes. So I think that's, you know, fabulous opportunity. And I think it's just going to grow. You know, I, I don't think that there's any chance that it is not going to grow. On the other hand, uh, let's just get to remakes, you know, really quickly. So what? Cover songs have existed in the music business for as long as the music business has existed. I don't understand why somebody can't cover a movie. You know, so I'm, I'm down for it. The, the only thing, like I said, is it good? Is it bad? This is just Fred's, you know, thing. Fuller House, bad. <laughs> yeah. One day at a time, uh -huh. revival, good. Sure. That's all that matters. Yeah. And when you see Disney doing it, well, one, it's a way to reinvigorate old IP, right? So it's almost more about, hey, how do we sell the soundtrack again? How do we sell the Halloween costume, get people to go well, to the theme know, parks? Well, you know, again, but the, the business stuff, yeah, that's all there. But again, that first decision, that first judgment is, can we do something that is good? And I define good as people like it. You know, I um, am one of these people, you know, when Beavis and Butthead was first being made, you know, the people in the animation business were like, this is terrible. It's horrible quality. 
Yeah, I come out of the rock and roll business where three people who couldn't play their instruments could make a record to go to the top of the pops, as well as the greatest studio musicians in the world. If the audience is in love, it's great quality, right? And my point of view on all of this stuff is if the judgment that was made that we can do something of great quality, all of the business things will fall into place if the audience loves. If the audience doesn't love all of your projections, all of your spreadsheets, all of the licensing deals you have made, all of the theme park deals, they're useless if people don't fall in love. And you know, I don't know, the first week I heard all these horrible things about the Lion King, about how kids were being scared across the world and what a disaster. Well, obviously the audience does not agree. I want to wrap things up here, but before you know, we, we do, a few rapid fire questions for you. One, what is something you believe that everyone else thinks is crazy? That tomorrow will be the same as today. Tomorrow is always crazier than today. Tomorrow is something that we cannot predict because when we're thinking about it today, we're only thinking about yesterday. Thinking about tomorrow, what's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the media, what would they be? If I knew that, like the day the game would be over, I have no idea. I never know. I joke all the time at Frederator uh, that we don't have any idea how to follow trends. And therefore, over our life, you know, over our lifespan, we have ended up creating a few trends, but we didn't do it on purpose. Like, you don't sit down and go, okay, let's create a trend. I mean, some people do, and if they're geniuses, they can do that. Here's all we do. We put one foot in front of another. We look for stunningly talented people that fire up our synapses and that we want to be near and around and work with for as long as we can. If we do that, we have a chance. We're very interested in commercial success. The Beatles are my North Star on everything, and they understood that they could be top of the pops and artistic simultaneously. And we have worked by that mantra like forever. What does the future hold for Frederator and for WoW Unlimited? More, better. We all want to do more. We're excited about what we do. We're just looking for new talent that can come up with great ideas and that we're lucky enough to be around. And we want to be better at what we do because, like, who doesn't? I mean, well, at least I, maybe there's some people that don't. We want to be better. More, better. Zooming out and looking at the white space in the entertainment landscape, if you were starting a business today, knowing everything you know, the lessons learned along the way, what would you do? I have no idea. I, I, I don't mean to be difficult, but who, who knows? You know, that is that, that's what makes it exciting. Who knows? When I fell in love with Miles Davis Bitches Brew, which is the 50-year antecedent to what Little Nas X has done with Old Town Road, really, that could I have imagined that that avant-garde masterpiece that somehow sold a million copies being the weirdest thing in the world, that that spark could jump 50 years to this young man, you know, who grew up in Georgia, who has upended every preconception of what the music business has been for a hundred years. If I could imagine that, I would be God. (laughs) And believe me, I'm not even Jesus. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Fred, where can people find out more about you and more about Frederator and WoW Unlimited? WoWUnlimited.co 
and Frederator.com. I guess those are the fastest ways to do it. Well, this has been so much fun. Thanks for taking us through your journey from you know, record producer to figuring out what is this whole television thing to I'm going to create cartoons. I just hope you can edit this <laughs> thing into some coherent podcast. For Absolutely. Your no, it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, that is media, right? At the end of the day, these aren't disparate disciplines. They all converge, right? And so your point that, you know, I've never been uh, just focused on one element of media, but I've been focused on pop culture, right? And that, that evolves and that takes different shapes and forms over time rings true. Yeah, it's a wild, wild ride. Like I think I said, I I thought I was a music guy and I found out that I was a ping pong ball in a pop culture wind tunnel that just goes where the wind goes. And that's what you know gets me up in the morning. It's what allows me to walk into an office where I'm 30 or 40 years older than the average person in there. I'm grandpa in the corner and happy as a clam. That's awesome. Well, Fred, thanks again. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, James. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another episode of All Things Video. If you have any questions or suggestions for future content, please send us an email at allthingsvideopodcast at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. Hey.